Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallet. How does the world come together? That's the question Hungarian mathematician Gabor Damokos wondered a few years ago. And geometry may have the answer. In 2016, Gabor Damokos arrived on geophysicist Douglas Jeromak's doorstep in Philadelphia. The two men walked across a gravel lot behind the house. Their feet crunched over crushed limestone. Damokos pointed down at the gravel pieces. How many facets do each of these have, he asked. He told Jeromak that the number was always somewhere around six. Then he asked a bigger question, one that he hoped would worm its way into his colleague's brain. What if the world is made up of cubes? Gerald Mack was hesitant. Sometimes there are a few people that are wizards in your life. Gabor is a wizard in my life. And by this, I mean, he even has the accent, you know, he kind of mysteriously arrives on my doorstep. He's in the States for some reason. He tells me barely before he's here, And then he's in my house. And then before I know it, he's cast some spell in my hyperly, overly busy U.S. academic parent trying to do everything life. Somehow he casts this spell and everything else disappears for a moment. And he has me singularly focused on some completely seemingly weird and then deep thing. Or outlandish, as Demokos dubs it. At first, Gerald Mack objected. Houses can be built out of bricks, but earth is made of rocks. Obviously, rocks vary. Mica flakes into sheets, crystals crack on sharply defined axes. But Demokos argued that from mathematics alone, any rocks that broke randomly would crack into shapes that have, on average, six faces and eight vertices. Considered together, they would all be shadowy approximations converging on a sort of ideal cube. Demoko said he'd proved it mathematically, but now he needed Gerald Mack's help to show that this is what nature does. Here's Gerald Mack, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm a geophysicist, and often I find that, you know, the way that mathematics gets applied to messy natural problems in nature is through physics, right? So it's that physics can explain something about nature and then Mathematics is simply the language that you write the physics-based equations like mass, momentum, conservation, and this kind of thing. In the case of Gabor talking to me, it was geometry with an exact prediction that was born out in the natural world with essentially no physics involved. And the biggest challenge for me was, I said, how in the hell does nature let this happen? Over the next few years, the pair chased their geometric vision from microscopic fragments to rock outcrops to planetary surfaces and even to the writing of Plato. Around 360 BCE, the Greek philosopher had matched his five platonic solids with five supposed elements, earth, air, fire, water, and star stuff. With either foresight or luck, or a little of both, Plato paired cubes, the most stackable shape, with Earth. Here's Gerald Mack again. When Gabor sent me the email about how, like, oh, you know, Plato ascribed the cube to Earth, and I was like, wow, okay. Now we're getting a little bit metaphysical, right? I was a little bit uncomfortable. 
But Gerald Mack and Damokos kept finding cuboid averages in nature, plus a few non-cubes that could be explained with the same theories. They ended up with a new mathematical framework, a descriptive language to express how all things fall apart. Their paper, Plato's Cube and the Natural Geometry of Fragmentation, was published last year. Several geophysicists say the same mathematical framework might also help with problems like understanding erosion from cracked cliff faces or preventing hazardous rock slides. One reviewer was Vanderbilt geophysicist David Furbish. For people like me, we will delight in this, and it will make us think. (laughs) And it turns out right now, I'm working on a problem, a long-standing problem, of the physics of how particles move down hill slopes. If you drop a rock on a hill slope on a steep inclined surface, how far will it go? That's a probabilistic problem. It's actually a statistical mechanics problem. And one of the things that we have discovered in our experiments and theory is that the particle shape matters a lot. A paper like this makes me think, can I somehow make use of the ideas that will inform the problems that I am thinking about and working on. Long before he came to Philadelphia, Demokos had more innocuous mathematical questions. Suppose you fracture something into many pieces. You now have a mosaic, a collection of shapes that could tile back together with no overlaps or gaps, like the floor of an ancient Roman bath. Now suppose those shapes are all convex, with no indentations. First, Demokos wanted to see if geometry alone could predict what shapes, on average, would make up that kind of mosaic. He wanted to be able to describe all other possible collections of shapes you could find. In two dimensions, you can try this out without smashing anything. Take a sheet of paper, make a random slice that divides the page into two pieces, then make another random slice through each of those two polygons, Repeat this random process a few more times, then count up and average the number of vertices on all the bits of paper. For a geometry student, predicting the answer isn't too hard, says Demokos. This is so simple. I mean, this is a high school problem. The pieces should average four vertices and four sides, averaging to a rectangle. You could also consider the same problem in three dimensions. About 50 years ago, Russian nuclear physicist dissident and Nobel Peace Prize winner Andrei Sakharov posed the same problem while chopping heads of cabbage. How many vertices should the cabbage pieces have, on average? Sakharov passed the problem on to legendary Soviet mathematician Vladimir Arnold and a student, but their efforts to solve it were incomplete and have largely been forgotten. Unaware of this work, Demokos wrote a proof which pointed to cubes as the answer. He wanted to double-check, though. He suspected that if an answer to the same problem already existed, it would be locked in an eye-crossing volume by German mathematicians Wolfgang Weil and Rolf Schneider, an 80-year-old titan in the field of geometry. Demokos is a professional mathematician, but even he found the text daunting. For the higher dimensions, there is a book in which you can find this as a theorem, But if you were not Schneider himself, you had zero chance even to understand what the chapter was about. There are only five people who can read that book. 
I am not among them. And it took me about one year to find someone who was willing to read that part of the book for me and translate it back into human language. Democos found the theorem for any number of dimensions. That confirmed that cubes were indeed the 3D answer. Now Demokos had the average shapes produced by splitting a flat surface or a three-dimensional block. But then a larger quest emerged. Demokos realized that he could also develop a mathematical description, not just of averages, but of potentiality. Which collections of shapes are even mathematically possible when something falls apart? Remember, the shapes produced after something falls apart are a mosaic. They fit together with no overlap or gaps. For example, those cut-up rectangles can easily tile together to fill in a mosaic in two dimensions. So can hexagons, in an idealized case of what mathematicians would call a Voronoi pattern. But pentagons or octagons? They don't tile. In order to properly classify mosaics, Demokos started describing them with two numbers. The first is the average number of vertices per cell. The second is the average number of different cells sharing each vertex. So in a mosaic of hexagonal bath tiles, each cell is a hexagon, which has six vertices, and each vertex is shared by three hexagons. In a mosaic, only certain combinations of these two parameters work, forming a narrow swath of shapes that could possibly result from something falling apart. Once again, this full swath was fairly easy to find in two dimensions, but much harder in three. Cubes stack together well in 3D, of course. That's kind of like playing Tetris. But other combinations of shapes stack together well, too, including those that form a 3D version of the Voronoi pattern. To keep the problem feasible, Demokos restricted himself to just mosaics with orderly convex cells that share the same vertices. Eventually, Demokos and mathematician Jot Langi devised a new conjecture that sketched out the curve of all possible three-dimensional mosaics like this. It gives you this global map which encompasses all mosaics in the universe. Demokos and Langi published it in Experimental Mathematics. We got some reasonable reviews. It was published. And then I sent the whole thing to Rolf Schneider who is, of course, the God. And by default, you don't expect to get any response from Rolf Schneider. I know Rolf Schneider, I met him in Budapest, but he's not a very talkative guy, okay? If you just look at his books, you get this impression that he prefers formula instead of saying anything. And, of course, there was no response. And after two weeks, out of the blue came an email from Rolf Schneider that big Gabor, Thank you very much. I am still thinking about your conjecture. <laughs> so, of course, that meant like 100 times more than being accepted in any journal. Okay, Rob Schneider is thinking about the conjecture. More importantly, Democos now had a framework. Mathematics offered a way to classify all the patterns that surfaces and blocks could break into. 
Geometry also predicted that if you fragmented a flat surface randomly, it would break into rough rectangles, and if you did the same in three dimensions, it would produce rough cubes. But for any of this to matter to anyone other than a few mathematicians, Democos had to prove that these same rules manifest themselves in the real world. By the time Democos swung through Philadelphia in 2016, he had already made some progress on the real-world problem. He and his colleagues at the Budapest University of Technology and Economics had gathered shards of dolomite eroded from a cliff face on a mountain in Budapest. After several days, a lab tech with no presuppositions about a universal conspiracy toward cubes painstakingly counted faces and vertices on hundreds of grains. On average, six faces, eight vertices. Demokos and his fellow researchers found that cuboid averages showed up in rock types like gypsum and limestone, too. With the math and the early physical evidence, Demokos, the wizard, pitched his idea to a stunned Jeromak, whose response was similar to what he'd thought when working on previous problems with Demokos. I said, why in the hell would nature let this happen? Years ago, Demokos had won renown by proving the existence of the gumbuts, a curious three-dimensional shape that swivels into an upright resting position no matter how you push it. To see if gumbuts existed in the natural world, he had recruited Gerald Mack, who helped apply the concept to explain the rounding of pebbles on Earth and Mars. Now, Demokos was again asking for help in translating lofty mathematical concepts into literal stone. The two men settled on a new plan. To prove Plato's cubes actually appear in nature, they needed to show more than just a coincidental echo between geometry and a few handfuls of rock. They needed to consider all rocks and then sketch out a convincing theory of how abstract math could percolate down through messy geophysics and into even messier reality. Demokos' mathematics had predicted that rock shards should average out to cubes, an increasing number of actual rock shards seemed happy to comply. Here's Gerald Mack. We had this intensive thing where he did this tutorial of me of everything they had gone through on the geometry side and on the observation side, and everything seemed to work. And I said, I know that it doesn't work everywhere, and I need to know why. And I need to also know how mechanics allows geometry to win. After all, the same geometry offered a vocabulary to describe the many other mosaic patterns that could exist in both two and three dimensions. Off the top of his head, Gerald Mack could picture a few real-world fractured rocks that didn't look like rectangles or cubes at all, but could still be classified into this larger space. Perhaps these examples would sink the cube world theory entirely. More promisingly, perhaps they would arise only in distinct circumstances and carry separate lessons for geologists. Over the next few years, working on both sides of the Atlantic, Gerald Mack and the rest of the team started plotting where real examples of broken rocks fell within Demokos' framework. The team investigated surface systems that are essentially two-dimensional, cracking permafrost in Alaska, a dolomite outcrop, and the exposed cracks of a granite block. They found polygons averaging four sides and four vertices, just like the sliced-up sheet of paper. 
Each of these geological cases seemed to appear where rocks had simply fractured. Here, Demokos' predictions held up. But another type of fractured slab proved to be what Gerald Mack had hoped for, an exception with its own distinct story to tell. Mudflats that dry, crack, get wet, heal, and then crack again have cells averaging six sides and six vertices following the roughly hexagonal Voronoi pattern. Rock made from cooling lava, which solidifies downward from the surface, can take on a similar appearance. These systems tended to form under a different type of stress, when forces pulled outward on a rock instead of pushing it in. The geometry revealed the geology. And Gerald Mack and Demokos thought this Voronoi pattern, even if it was relatively rare, might also occur on scales far larger than they had previously considered. Midway through the project, the team met in Budapest and spent three days sprinting to incorporate more natural examples. Gerald Mack did a search on his computer. I pulled up, you know, this thing that I've seen on the walls of classrooms a million times that has the outlines of all the tectonic plates. I called the team together and all of us were seeing it for the first time, like seeing it in a new way when we looked at it and we were like, oh, I think we can say something about this. They were looking at the mosaic of how Earth's tectonic plates fit together. Plates are confined to the lithosphere, a nearly two-dimensional skin on the surface of the planet. By eye, the plates looked as if they hewed to the Voronoi pattern, not the rectangular one. Then the team counted. In a perfect Voronoi mosaic of hexagons in a flat plane, each cell would have six vertices. The actual tectonic plates averaged 5.77 vertices. For a geophysicist, that was close enough to celebrate. For a mathematician like Demokos, not so much. So Doug was getting into a good mood. He was working like hell. He was inspiring. I was getting in a depressed mood for the next day because I was just thinking about the gap. I went home and I wrote down other numbers and I thought there is something wrong. This gap, this cannot be too. So there is something wrong. And then it hit him. A mosaic of hexagons can tile a plane, but Earth isn't a flat plane. Think of a soccer ball covered in both hexagons and pentagons. Demokos crunched the numbers for the surface of a sphere and found that on a globe, Voronoi mosaic cells should average 5.77 vertices. This insight might help researchers answer a major open question in geophysics. How did Earth's tectonic plates form? One idea holds that plates are just a byproduct of burbling convection cells deep in the mantle. But an opposing camp holds that Earth's crust is a separate system, one that expanded, grew brittle, and cracked open. Gerald Mack says the observed Voronoi pattern of plates, reminiscent of much smaller mudflats, might support the second argument. Here's University of Edinburgh geomorphologist Mikhail Atal, one of the scientists who reviewed the paper before publication. That's also what made me realize how important that paper was, because, you know, most of the fragments that we looked at otherwise, most of the fragments were rocks, things like that. So 
everyone can sort of perceive, but be able to uh, take that more planetary surfaces. And in terms of the implication as well, I think it's really phenomenal. Meanwhile, in three dimensions, exceptions to the cuboid rule were rare enough. And they too could be produced by simulating unusual outward pulling forces. One distinctively non-cubic rock formation lies on the coast of Northern Ireland, where waves lap against tens of thousands of basalt columns. The English name for these giant stepping stones is the Giant's Causeway. Those columns and other similar volcanic rock formations are six-sided, but simulations produced Giant's Causeway-like mosaics as three-dimensional structures that had simply grown up from a two-dimensional Voronoi base, itself produced when volcanic rock cooled. The team argues that by zooming out, you could classify most real fractured rock mosaics using just platonic rectangles, 2D Voronoi patterns, and then overwhelmingly platonic cubes in three dimensions. Each of these patterns could tell a geological story. And yes, with the appropriate caveats, you really could say the world is made of cubes. David Furbish of Vanderbilt says there's a beauty to this framework. The math is telling us that when we begin to fracture rocks, however we do it, whether we do it randomly or deterministically, there is only a certain set of possibilities. (laughs) How clever is that? Specifically, perhaps you could take a real fractured field site count up things like vertices and faces, and then be able to infer something about the geological circumstances responsible. As for Jeromac, after first feeling uncomfortable over a possibly coincidental connection to Plato, he's come to embrace it. Jeromac says he keeps coming back to the Greek philosopher's allegory of the cave. You have prisoners in a cave that are looking at a wall, and all that they see is the shadows on this wall of a projector behind. So you have this rich world behind you of true things, and you see these distorted, minimal shadows of them on the Mm -hmm. wall, right? And the idea that, in a sense, that geometry is the organizing principle and the scaffolding around which the natural world is organizing, and yet all that we ever see is distorted shadows of these ideal forms, and yet these ideal forms are central to understanding the organization of the universe. And so when we returned to that and we were talking and thinking about the allegory of the cave, we said, as Gabor said, this is literally the most direct example that we can think of. You know, the statistical average of all of these observations is the cube, but the cube never exists. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Joshua Sokol's full article, Scientists Uncover the Universal Geometry of Geology, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Explore other mysteries of science in the Quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, or your local bookstore. 